0: and the brokenness and the violence that dwells in the human heart. Sin. And here we are at Good Friday. And I would suggest to you today that my friends, this is God's answer to death and violence and brutality and injustice and sometimes unimaginable evil. The answer of God comes to us in the death of Jesus Christ and ultimately his resurrection. I want to read to you a description of what happened on that day so long ago in Calvary from Isaiah 53. This was written hundreds of years before Jesus actually died. It's a prophecy looking forward to what he would do. But listen to its description and listen if you would. Can I ask you to do this literally what he has done for us? What he took to himself and upon himself for our sake. Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He, Jesus, had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed. For our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, And who can speak of his descendants, for he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer, and though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered among the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession... For the transgressors, my friends, um, God's answer—the answer of the Lord to what we had become and what we have become—was the cross of Jesus Christ, where we are told He took to Himself, if you would, our reality. He bore, Peter says, He, he bore that reality in His body on the tree. What did he take? I want to just briefly skim this passage. Verse 4 says that he took our pain. He took your pain and he took mine to himself. He embraced it. It says he took our suffering. That's a strong word. But what this passage tells us is that Jesus suffered so that we would not have to. Verse 5, it says he took our transgressions and our iniquities. Later on, it talks about our sins three different ways, describing how we had violated the will of God, how we had rebelled against what the Lord wants in his commandments and in his way, how we had just rebelled against the authority and the will of God. Jesus took our transgressions, our iniquities, our sins to himself, and he took our punishment so that we might not have to experience it, so that we could be forgiven so that we could be free of it. He took our wounds, the verse says, in his wounds of body, wounds of mind, wounds of heart, our brokenness. The Bible says these were laid on him that we might be what? Healed. Healed. in verses 7 and 8, he was oppressed so that we could be set free from the oppressive power of sin and evil. It says he was afflicted. Does that mean he was deeply distressed to the point of anguish? Why? So that we might know peace in our lives. Verse 10, it says he was crushed so that we could find the flourishing of the life of God in us. The basic principle theologians talk about, it's called substitutionary atonement. It's basically the idea that Jesus became our substitute that day. That as he was crucified, our judgment was placed on him. The punishment that we deserve, he suffered for us. So that we could be made one with God. So that we could be forgiven, so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be reconciled to the living God. Two points I want to make to you. He and he alone could do this. Verse 9 describes the fact that he did this even though there was no violence found in him, no deceit was found in his mouth. Jesus lived a perfect life so that he could take our penalty. If he had lived anything other than a perfect life, he would be suffering for his own sins, but he did not sin. And he took our place. My friends, he took your place that day. And I want to tell you too, this was all in the plan of God. Verse 6 describes how the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who did that? God the Father did. He placed it upon him. Verse 10 talks about how the Lord will crush him. And indeed that it was in the sovereign plan and will of God to do so. A plan born out of love for you and for me. My friends, what Jesus did on Good Friday, the original, the first, that day he was crucified, nailed to a tree. It is the center of the Christian faith. I want to tell you it is a remarkable thing that Jesus did this. But I want to tell you too, it is a shocking thing that he did it for you and for me. I want to illustrate this whole dynamic. I want to illustrate the fact of what Jesus did um, so long ago by telling you about an, uh, an experience I had a couple of years ago. Many of you will know I was blessed with a, a sabbatical, a time to step away from ministry. During that sabbatical, I uh, was offered to, by John Heddle's parents, John, our youth worker here, and to go to their flat or condominium on the uh, south coast of England for as long as I might want. Um, in the, in the Portsmouth area. And I did that. Portsmouth is a long-standing naval base for the British Navy, and by that I mean hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. It still is an, a primary naval base uh, for that country. And while I was there, I went to uh, the Naval Museum because I'm a bit of a history buff, having studied English and European history at university. And I was thrilled to see a ship that I had heard of, and there she is. I couldn't believe my eyes. The victory. This ship that I had heard about for so long, uh, now I was able not only to see but to get into and to learn about. This ship, the victory, was the flagship of, in the Battle of Trafalgar which was fought in 1804. It was the greatest naval battle of, in British history, I would suggest to you. The stakes were high Whichever country would win this battle, and uh, the British were aligned against the French and the Spanish who were fighting together, um, they would rule the world because they ruled the seas. They would rule the world's commerce, they would control the world's wealth, they would determine the future of the world. And the people of England, when they knew the battle was about to be engaged, waited anxiously to hear the outcome. The English sent their national hero, Admiral Horatio Nelson to lead the fleet. When the day came, there were three battle groups, side by side, each lined up against the enemy in single rows, facing one another. Nelson in the victory was in the middle group and did something completely unexpected and totally unheard of. Rather than deploying typical uh, battle strategies, he sailed the victory directly into the middle of the enemy line. When he was literally between two enemy ships, he opened fire with as many, many cannons as did the enemy. Here's what amazed me as I was told about that battle as I stood on the deck of that ship. Two particular points. Number one was the speed at which the victory traveled toward the enemy line. We see movies like the Pirates of the Caribbean and we imagine ships flying past one another and blasting away with their cannons in the hope of hitting the enemy ship, but in the hope of being sure that they wouldn't be hit themselves. But the victory was under sail and traveled at three to five miles an hour. There would be no escaping the punishment that that ship would take. And the second thing that I learned was that these ships, when they engaged one another in battle, were remarkably close, probably so close that their gunnels, their sides were touching um, there would have been hand-to-hand combat it would have taken incredible courage to sail that ship toward that line it would have taken a fierce determination to win and it would have taken a willingness to die many people did die including horatio nelson he was shot from above, probably somebody in the rigging of an enemy ship who had a musket, and muskets had terrible aim, there was no accuracy to them, so it was a lucky shot, I was told, but he took a musket ball in his chest, and it killed him. I was standing there hearing this, and someone said, look on the floor of the deck over there is the very place where Nelson died. People of England wept openly in the streets when they heard that their hero had been killed. Now tell me, what do you think of this? I personally think it was an absolutely remarkable feat of courage and determination. He knew what was at stake, and he did what was needed in order to win the battle. I want you to listen to me now, my friends. Before Jesus came to this earth, he knew what was at stake. The stakes were high. The enemy, evil, ruled and had brought incredible destruction to this earth which God had created for good. The future would be determined by what he would do. Only by defeating the enemy's power would this world be changed and transformed according to the will of his Father. And Jesus did something absolutely and completely unheard of and unexpected. He came. And he walked directly into the middle of the enemy line with its brutality and with its cruelty and with its evil, which continues to be displayed and experienced in our world. Knowing that he could not escape the punishment that would come. My friends, who could have imagined that the Son of God, the very eternal Son of God, would come to redeem creation, taking the place of those who literally had rebelled against him and against the will of his Father? Come and be willing to suffer their punishment for them through his own death. Like the victory, can I say this? Under the command of Nelson, he came slowly, with incredible intentionality and with a fierce determination to save this world. It required, I would suggest to you, a huge courage. But I want to suggest to you too, it would require an immense love in his heart for you and for me. Unlike Nelson, Jesus knew what the outcome would be. And in the end, Jesus died not from a musket ball in the chest, but from nails piercing his hands and his feet as he was nailed to a cross. Jesus gave his life to defeat the power of evil so that you and I could be set free from its power and its consequences. So that this world could be set free from the power that had taken hold of it. So that we might know what the Bible calls salvation. See, Jesus came and he died so that in the end this world would have an incredibly different future. So that one day, and I proclaim it to you today. There would be a day when there would be no more ISIS or anyone with such a heart. There would be no more wars like the war in Syria that has taken over 220,000 lives. That there would be a day when there would be no more disturbed pilots intent on harming themselves and others. That there would be a day when hatred in the hearts of people, uh, making them eager to kill would be no more. Jesus came and he died and he ultimately rose again so that this world someday would become a place of peace. And a place of joy, and a place dominated by grace, and a place ruled by love. He died so that hearts, human hearts, might be made right. He died so that we might think the thoughts of God after him and know his truth. Jesus died that people might live their lives to the glory of God. Let me read to you from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 to 20. No, sorry, 1 Peter chapter 2, 21 to 24. It says this. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you. There it is again. Leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Listen, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. My friends, on the cross, Jesus took, and I'm going back to Isaiah 53, he took your pain, He took your suffering, he took your sin to himself, he took your woundedness, he took your affliction, all so that you could break free, so that you could be forgiven of your sin, so that you could be reconciled to God. That is the answer of God to the evil that dwells in this world still. And I have one simple yet profound question to ask every single person here today, and it is this, do you Believe it. Do you believe it? The Bible is so clear. The solution to or the condition of our heart and the solution to the condition of this world does not lie within us. We have no power to free ourselves from sin. We have no power to free ourselves from its grip in us or in our world. The solution was sent. The Bible calls it salvation. It was sent to us in the person of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, 18-20. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed. It means purchased, bought back. That you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. But with the precious blood of Christ. A lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world. But was revealed in these last times. Listen, for your sake. For you. My friends, with the blood of Christ, the blood which he shed, the blood which drained from his body, leading to his death, we, if we will only believe, are set free. I want to ask just a couple of things as I conclude. Number one, I want to ask, if you have never trusted in Christ, I'd ask you to consider doing so today. If you have never come to that place of placing your life on this reality, I say, do it now. Come to him in prayer. Ask the Lord Jesus, who has already paid the penalty for your sin, to forgive you of it, and he will. Invite him into your life. I invite him to enter into your life that he might dwell in you by his power, breaking you free from the hold of sin and evil. And as you invite him and ask him to forgive your sin, so invite him to be your Lord, the leader of your life. My friends, if you do believe this already, as I know many of you do, can I ask you, in the remainder of what we will share together, both by way of song and by way of sharing in this communion meal. Can I ask you today to respond to what Jesus has done for you by simply worshiping him? Worshiping him for what he has done for you. For the love that he has shown for the victory that he has already achieved. It is done. Worship him for the salvation that he has accomplished on your behalf, something you cannot and could never do on your own. Worship him as your Savior and as your Lord. My friends, we come to communion and ask the elders to take the cloths off. And in communion, we do one thing, don't we? We remember. We remember that Jesus has died. We remember that he has shed his blood. We remember what he has done for us. For those of you who believe, you are invited to this table. You were invited to take the cup, as I'll describe in a minute, and take the bread and understand again, and I hope in a spiritually powerful way, that they represent the broken body of Jesus for you and the blood that he shed for you and the potential that exists now in your life because he is yours and you are his. Come to this table in faith, Come with an incredible gratitude in your heart. Participate. And in so do, worship the one who is both your Savior and your Lord. Let me pray. Gracious God, we come to you having been reminded again of the incredible thing Christ has done for us. He has gained the victory. He has won the battle. He has overcome the power of sin and evil and death. And that same Lord Jesus, we know when we receive him by faith and find forgiveness of our sins, he dwells in us that we might overcome, that we might break free, that we might be healed, that we might be transformed from the inside out. And God, we come now to simply ask forgiveness for sin before we share in this meal. Forgive us, Lord God, for all that we have done wrong. For the sin we have committed, the iniquity, the transgression, those words that arise out of Isaiah. We're sorry. We confess our sin before you. And we pray again, living Lord, that you would forgive us. And we pray now that you will meet us as we participate in this holy meal. God, as we hold the bread and as we hold the cup, as we consume both, powerfully remind us of what Jesus has done for us. Amen. The night uh, long ago, just prior to the crucifixion, Jesus took bread as he was with his disciples and he broke it and he said, this bread is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for the forgiveness of sin. Do this in remembrance of me.